Sego Sewa Wego. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to our Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast, focusing on Haudenosaunee cultural topics recorded on Haudenosaunee territory. Our podcasts are produced by Aboriginal Legal Services with the technical assistance of Humble Man Recording. My name is Lisa Venevery from the Mohawk Nation and the Wolf Clan. I'm the coordinator of the Yohate Negasuna Road to Your Name program and the host of this podcast. Welcome to the Ohatde Negasuna Road to Your Name podcast series. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our new website at www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word donate located on the bottom of the page of our newly updated website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services Toronto, Canada. This episode was recorded by telephone. Welcome to today's episode of um, the Road to Your Name podcast. And on this episode, we'll be talking with Nicole Hill Dolson. And Nicole is a lawyer from Oneida of the Thames. She's from the Bear Clan. And she works in the justice system. And we're going to talk about a lot of different topics today. And welcome, Nicole. Welcome to um, the podcast, Wrote Your Name podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, we got, because we're talking about the justice system, we have so much to talk about. We better get started. (laughs) What what, um, drew me to you is reading an article um, from the CBC where you were featured and you were talking about how your grandmother, who was a survivor of the uh, Mohawk Institute, had inspired you so much and you had visited the Mohawk Institute. Can you share a little bit about your experience with um, visiting the Mohawk Institute? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I grew up knowing my grandma always went to residential schools um, and I knew that she ran away. Um, but I never knew which school it was. Um, I mean, they probably told me, but I didn't make the connection until I was actually in law school. I was in my last semester of law school. Um, I was kind of like on a class field trip. Yeah, they still do that in law school. Yeah. Um, and uh, we actually went to the Mohawk Institute for like a tour. Um, and they were telling us all these horrible things have happened like in these different spaces it was actually two survivors were taking us around the whole um school and then at the end of it we kind of ended off in this conference room and there was like a plaque with names on it and that's when I seen my grandmother's name and it I just got like hit with a ton of bricks like of emotions it was so overwhelming um I kind of held it together for the most part until I got into my car um and then I was just started bawling like this was her experience this is what really happened like of course um in school I have a major in first nation studies from western and philosophy so I knew a lot about the history already um 
but I never really knew my grandma's experience because she never talked about it. We just knew where she went and that she ran away. That was it. So it was really hard in that sense to realize like this, these things actually happened to her and these things happened to other kids around her. And that's what her experience was um, kind of as a preteen. So it was also really hard because at that time, my last semester of law school, my husband and I, I think we were just engaged at that point. But anyway, we were actually living on Oneida at my grandma's old house. So from that drive to the residential school back to my grandma's house, I mean, that was her journey. That's where her and her brothers ran. That was the path they took, probably not on the road, like probably off the road, but it was still such a big distance. Like it's 45 minutes to an hour driving. So that's almost like 22 hours walking um, here and there that they must have done as children. So it was really um, emotional. It was really emotional. Uh, yeah. So that was my experience of finding out. I can imagine. And I, I really feel a connection to you because my grandfather went to that school as well from the age of four to 16. And oh, so wow. to to know that our grandparents um, went there and and survived it, actually, you know, yeah. it, it gives it gives me at least a, such a um, I'm, I'm very proud that that he survived that, you know, to, what courage yeah, it yeah. took, what courage it took for a small child to, to survive um, an experience such as that. Mm-hmm. And really for your grandmother to make it that long journey back home. You know, was she with others or was she on her own or? Um, To my understanding, it was her two younger brothers who Mm -hmm. actually were very big into hunting. Um, So we don't really know 100%, but it sounds like they were able to track their way back, Mm -hmm. uh, back home. I don't even know if it was like following the stars at night type Mm -hmm. of thing. Mm -hmm. They're so lucky that they didn't get caught, you know, um, and like kind of dragged back or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And they actually had a younger sister there as well. Um, But to my understanding that they left her there because she was too young to make the journey, they thought. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when they got home, they sent their dad back to go get her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it really shows the strength. It really shows the strength of our people and like the determination um, to be treated properly, um, to be respected and to keep our culture. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think it it makes us um, us strong today and resilient as a people, right? Um, and it take and I know it takes a lot of strength to get through law school. <laughs> so, oh yeah. <laughs> so, so can you can you talk about that? What drew you to be to become a lawyer? Um, so honestly, like it was probably growing up on the reserve. So I actually grew up on Oneida. Um, I went to the school there, Standing Stone. Um, I was actually bullied a lot. So I kind of look, I have like a lighter skin. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of look Asian. And so I got picked on a lot for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a smaller family on Oneida. So everybody else was like cousins, second cousins or something like that. They had like some more relations than I did. Um, so my dad, he was just very open. Um, my parents were both very open about the struggles that our people have faced and the things going on in other people's homes that I wasn't really exposed to. So they're like, these children are going through things, um, this intergenerational trauma um, from colonization and residential schools, right? Like these are big topics for a little kid, but yeah. <laughs> um, they they were open about it. Like there's, you know, things that we don't do in our household that they're experiencing and you're just a target for their anger. 
So Mm -hmm. it's not anything personal. It's just they're taking it out on you um, based on how they feel about themselves and whatnot. Um, And honestly, that just made me very empathetic. That just taught me to not hold a grudge against them. And in many capacities, whether it was as a law student, as a lawyer, um, even right now with me working on my reserve again, I mean, I've worked with many of the people that used to pick on me Mm -hmm. and I've been able to help them in ways that I guess I never thought I could. Like I helped Mm -hmm. people get out of custody. I've helped them with different legal documents and I've helped them get items for their homes and stuff like that. And it's like, just knowing where they were coming from, I guess. Um, So yeah, I knew more about what was going on in other people's homes and how I wasn't exposed to that. Um, And I guess it was kind of like my family always kind of respected the white man's education and really pushed me to go far as I can. Um, And my grandma in particular would say that, like, she's like, um, it was when we were actually moving off the reserve. Me and my sister were teenagers at that point. Um, things were just getting bad. Like, I don't know how your reserve is, but with mine, mm-hmm. there's a lot of underage drinking, um, driving around um, and drinking. And mm-hmm. people wanted my sister and I to be involved in that. And my dad just had enough. So he moved us off the reserve. We went to town and um, I guess in a kind of way to like protect us from all that. Um, and when we were moving, my grandma actually, she waited until my parents were gone. And then she kind of just showed up at my house to me and my sister. And she was just kind of like, um, like, don't you ever forget where you came from? Like, (laughs) you know, Oneida's your home. Like, these are your people. And like, you go as far as you can with education. You go, you get that degree, that white man's degree, and you come back here and help your people. So like stuff like that. And those kind of messagings just like really, um, imprinted on me and it kind of helped me to want to help my people um but it was much before that that I actually wanted to help them um I guess just knowing what was going on in other people's homes and wanting to help them um as a child I guess that's Mm -hmm. what it was all about yeah well in the article you said that your gift is to understand and interpret the legal jargon and and for myself having worked in the justice system for over 10 years I can say that that is a significant gift you know to be able to understand and interpret the, it's it's like working in a foreign system in many <laughs> ways for us so can you share with us what it's what it's like being an indigenous lawyer in this system, an Indigenous person working in the justice system? Um, it is very difficult. <laughs> yeah. You feel very alone, honestly, and that's how it felt in law school. Um, I'll go back to that. Actually, you know, when I started law school, um, I think I was the only one, there was only four of us that were Indigenous, but I was the only one from a reserve, mm-hmm. um, and that was full first nation (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I had that background um Mm -hmm. so I felt very alone I felt Mm -hmm. very alone um I went to Windsor Law and honestly that was just the tip of the iceberg that was just the start of it for me um sadly Mm -hmm. um and it is very hard it is very hard being the only one but um I guess I guess you get to represent your people and kind of change people's perspectives 
somewhat. Um, I still have difficulty to this day to even enter the lawyer's lounge at the courthouse. I don't know why. Um, people have just told me, like, own my space, own it. Like, I, I deserve to be there just as much as anyone else. But yeah. it still gets to me. So I totally get it. I'm just like, I'm just a girl from the Reds who yeah. <laughs> became yeah. a lawyer. Yeah. But I still have those same fears and those same feelings. Um, mm-hmm. It is like a foreign language. I can't pinpoint why I understand the legal jargon when I read it. Mm-hmm. Um, it just makes sense to me. But like I said, I have also a degree in philosophy. So yeah. I just understand weird concepts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that degree in philosophy probably helps you out a lot for sure. Oh yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> Um, so tell me, do you have any experience working in, we have an Indigenous um, People's Court here in Brantford, and do you, do you have a similar one there in London, I guess it would be? Yeah, so in London, we have a Gladue Court. Mm-hmm. Um, I was lucky enough, actually, I think in 2013, it started in London, um, and I was actually on the committee to get it started. I was like the youth representative, uh, mm-hmm. just like my great experience with Namrid Friendship Center. Um, and I was originally on the Aboriginal Community Justice Program, and then they started the whole Gladue Committee to get the court started there. Um, it kind of started when I was go- started law school in 2013. So I didn't really get experience it until I became a summer student for legal aid. And then I came back and it was full blown and running every single week. That was amazing for when I came back. Um, there, at that time, there was um, Justice George, who mm-hmm. I believe is from Kettle Point or Wapool. I want to say Kettle Point. Um, so originally he was the main judge there, um, Justice Skaronsky, who's a huge advocate for Indigenous issues. Um, I believe he's retired now. Um, so it was happening every single week, every single Thursday. Uh, when I started my practice, I want to say all my clients were criminal clients, criminal Aboriginal clients. Um, I was in Gladue Court probably every single Thursday. Uh, the way it was run, it was mainly just kind of open um, in the morning. Uh, I believe Mike Hopkins from Namrin would do uh, a ceremony at his house um, to kind of just bring the good vibes and everything. Um, and then they would have uh, eagle feather and some medicines um, because sometimes people get emotional doing their pleas. Yes. The way it's run in London is that... Um, you can only go to Gladue Court if you're agreeing to plead guilty to the charges. Yes. So like if you want to take it to um, trial or something like that, you don't really get that opportunity. Um, if you're, I don't know, even if you get like direct accountability or something like that, um, you don't really have the opportunity. But once again, of course, you'd have to like have a lawyer, have them negotiate on your behalf, uh, request mm-hmm. that you go into the Aboriginal court um, mm-hmm. and that get like some sort of Aboriginal specific sentencing. Um, So yeah, it's not really, I've heard about how they run it in Toronto. (laughs) I'm new to knowing that there's one in Brantford. I'm very excited to hear that. (laughs) I would love to be involved in that some way, but yeah, um, Uh I I could see it could be definitely more um, involved. You can definitely insert the culture a lot more. Oh yeah, for sure. There's a lot of opportunity <laughs> there, and and uh-huh. um, in Brantford with the pandemic, we've we've just begun to do Zoom um, circles. 
Oh. Yeah. So that's been really um, interesting. And yeah. I mean, do, our court here in Brantford has always been one of adapting, you know, mm, adapting okay. to what we need, adapting to, and it's grown like that. So, and, and that's very um, much on point with um, traditional values, right? We, we've always been an adaptable people. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I I invite you to come in and, um, you know, when we're in person again, come in and um, observe how the court here is, is working. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I would definitely love to. Yeah. Um, also in the article, it said you work as a Jordan principal navigator. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so Jordan's principal, um, it was a court case that took place, I believe, somewhere between 2007 and 2009. Um, it was brought forward by the Karen Society with mm -hmm. Cindy Blackstock. Um, what happened was is that Jordan River Anderson, he actually passed away in hospital when he was only a few years old. And it was because the government was going back and forth, provincial and federal government were going back and forth on who can pay his medical bills for him to leave the hospital and go home. Mm -hmm. um, so this actually happens a lot for Aboriginal children um, where they have health needs, education needs, and, you know, just all the government organization policies and stuff like that. Everybody just goes back and forth, back and forth. Who can provide money for these children type of thing. So Jordan's principle now is that these children get the money up front. Mm -hmm. They get the money. So what I kind of do as a navigator, um, they come to the program on Oneida at the health center. And we actually have an agreement with Indigenous Services Canada so that we can actually pay the money up front. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you still have to apply. So mm -hmm. let's say your child needs um, a psychoeducational assessment for school. Um, so they do offer them for free. It takes a few years waiting list um, to actually get one to determine if you have any like learning disabilities or anything. Um, but you can also do it through Jordan's principle. Mm -hmm. So the key to all of that is having actually really great support letters. So if you have support letters from your teacher, your family doctor, whoever else who can speak to it. Um, and then we gather all your whole application, all your documents, and we send it off to Indigenous Services Canada. And then only then they make the decision on whether to approve or deny your funding. And then Oneida will assist with the funding up front mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. so it's just trying to help kids who are stuck in the system like that um it's kind of not being utilized that way um as with anything you need more policies and structure to it um some families as they do are just trying to take advantage of it sadly so mm -hmm. hopefully that gets sorted out more in the next few years oh yeah so that's what keeps you busy now on on oneida yeah. Yeah. That's what I, that's like my nine to five job. <laughs> yeah. So like with the pandemic, you know, mm -hmm. I just had to take something. Um, I yeah. had a baby last August and mm -hmm. she was only six weeks old when I had a call and I'm just like, well, mm -hmm. I guess I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. I'll take it. Yeah. Then I'm just kind of doing legal stuff on the side right now. Okay. And so is your goal to get more involved in back into the courts? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I mean, my main focus for becoming a lawyer was actually working with chief and councils yeah. was doing Aboriginal governance, um, mm -hmm. like land transfers, you know, mm -hmm. 
the big court cases and stuff like that. It wasn't necessarily just criminal oh, law. I, see, um, yeah. I would definitely love to do more with the community and the entirety. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no, if the opportunity presents itself, I would definitely take it. Oh yeah. Well, there's so much when you're talking about law and indigenous issues. I mean, land is definitely one, one of the more, more important ones for sure. Yeah. And constitutional law and uh, taxation. Oh my gosh, we have so many issues that yeah. that are in the legal system. Mm-hmm. Um. So it also in the art. I was so I was so interested in reading the article that the CBC did on you, and um, in there you said you one of the goals is um to become a judge. Is that still one of your goals? Yes, it is yeah. one of my main goals. So yeah. actually speak more to that. Um, so as I was just saying that there was a First Nation um, judge um, mm-hmm. in London, he actually moved up to Superior Court. So he's mm-hmm. actually doing mostly family law court now. So mm-hmm. now we're back at no First Nation judge uh, yeah. doing criminal law in London. So, yeah, I mean, that is a huge goal of mine, uh, being a First Nation woman to assist with our people um, in any way possible. Uh, But yeah, of course, I'd want to do more as well, not just criminal law. Um, And, you know, there are many issues that face our people in the courts. So, Oh, yeah. I mean, times are changing, um, I think, because we just we just um, have Mary Simon now, the first Inuk. Um, Governor General. Yeah. And I mean, that's really exciting. And, um, but we don't have anyone, any Indigenous person on the Canadian Supreme Court yet. No, we don't. Uh, I mean, that's a, I think it's, it's always been the, um, not that there aren't qualified um, people to go there, but I think it's always been one of the barriers of, is the language, you know? the um the bilingual french english part oh yeah. Yeah, yeah so i mean if they if they would consider um if bilingualism is is such an important issue they should consider people who are um bilingual with their own traditional language mm-hmm. i mean language is so important yeah. Well, and a lot of times as well, they make an exception for First Nation people. So with legal aid, me getting a job there for, you know, summer student articling, that was a huge thing as well mm-hmm. to be bilingual. And I'm not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, you have that First Nation life experience yeah, and blood memory that you can bring into assisting with you. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, so what else is going on as a, as a lawyer? Um, you know, what do you think about the, um, the, the whole Gladue, um, law? And do you think that the legal system has, has really embraced that and, or do we have a way, a fair way to go? I believe that we have quite a way to go. Mm -hmm. So, Like, it's great that, you know, we know of a few different satellite clinics and things that do Aboriginal law, um, the Indigenous courts. But, you know, I was actually in St. Thomas maybe a year or two ago. Oh, probably two years now. I, like, missed a whole year in the pandemic. I keep Mm -hmm. thinking (laughs) my timeline's off. Anyway, um, I had a client, a First Nation client in St. Thomas, and I actually hosted the first ever full sentencing 
circle. Mm-hmm. Like they never had that before. And we actually had people stopping by in the courtroom as it was taking place. Um, and they actually tried to deny it at first. Yeah. And so um, I actually connected with Aboriginal Legal Services um, in Toronto mm-hmm. um, and got Jonathan Rooting kind of on board. <laughs> yeah. I had to like reach out to him and I felt like I was talking to a star. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, Jonathan's great. He's my he's my supervisor. <laughs> yeah, he's so amazing. So people like me were just like, oh, my God, it's Jonathan. Than Rudin. Um, So yeah, he, I just wanted to see whether or not I was reading the cases correctly. And if my understanding of the law was right, um, he reassured me that I was definitely on the right trajectory. And it really seemed like the crown was very off base with her understanding. Um, So, you know, just having that support and then, because it actually all came about because the crown was actually referencing one of the books he wrote. Oh yeah. <laughs> Incorrectly yeah. referencing one of his books. Yeah. Um, and he's like, no, that's not what I meant by that. And he started like sending more of and explaining himself more. And it, it was amazing. Um, so I had to write um, all these documents and submit it to court to even argue, to get my client a sentencing circle that they were trying to deny. Um, and the same with the Gladue report. Um, mm-hmm. There's no Gladue report. Um, writer in St. Thomas. Um, Mm -hmm. I had to apply to get one. It was denied. And then I had to appeal it. And it's just, no, there is a lot of work to be done. And sadly, St. Thomas isn't that far from London. And sadly, St. Thomas, my other legal experience there, they don't even know that there's three reserves only like 15 minutes away from them. So there is a lot of work to be done. Oh, really? For sure. And, and a lot of education and it, and it mainly falls on us, right? to yeah. to do this to educate the legal system about all of these things um same i it reminds me of the same thing happened in hamilton and um with a judge who wanted to have a um sentencing circle there because they don't have a um indigenous court there either yet and yeah. um i remember her saying that she had to do some legal research to see why uh, that there um could be you know, there was no reason not to um, have mm-hmm. a sentencing circle. So, I mean, judges are doing this research on their own, you know. So mm-hmm. I think I think we all could get together and um, educate, um, you know, each other. Yeah, definitely. More so. Um, oh, you should be wrapping up now. Is there anything you'd like to talk about that we haven't talked about or anything you'd like to add? that I can think of no oh. well this was a great conversation <laughs> we talked yeah, about well. a lot of different things <laughs> so I wish you well on your journey to accomplish your goal to become a judge I can't wait for that to happen <laughs> we really need that we really need that yeah. in the justice system more indigenous judges for sure yeah, most definitely. Um, and, you know, I, I really think when I think of my grandfather and um, and you probably when you think of your grandmother, I, I, I just really believe that they're, they'd be proud of us both working so hard in the justice system. Yeah, I believe that. I actually get like emotional when I think about what if my grandma could see me today. Yeah, for sure. And and I invite you to come back and visit in Brantford and maybe we can tour again. The um, They're just finishing up the Mohawk Institute, the renovations there, um, turning it into a museum. 
So I invite you back and and come along with me and we'll tour the the place again. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Okay, so on Yahweh so much, Yahweh Goa for um, being the guest today, Nicole. This We've been talking with Indigenous lawyer Nicole Hill Dolson from Oneida of the Thames. She's from the Bear Clan. And it's been so nice speaking with you today. Thank you for having me. Okay, onigiwahi. Yahweh, thank you for listening to this episode of the Yohate Negasunha, The Road to Your Name podcast, which has been produced by Aboriginal Legal Services and hosted by me, Lisa Van Every. There are 10 episodes in this podcast series. Let's meet again on the next episode. If you would like to learn more about our organization, Aboriginal Legal Services, and the programs and services we provide, please visit us at our new website at www.aboriginallegal.ca. And if you feel inclined and would like to make a donation, you can click on the word donate located on the bottom of the page of our newly updated website. You can also visit us on Facebook at Aboriginal Legal Services Toronto, Canada. This has been the Yohate Negasuna, The Road to Your Name podcast series. Yeah.